0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash Ear for more details.
1: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
3: you're listening to a podcast from the word mark you've got a stack waddy
4: i have a stack waddy i have a topical stack waddy for you okay good products that have been launched by rock stars some real one a crisp work of fiction (laughs) has a topical twist to it okay okay and here they come has Alex James of Blur? You can you can you can go all the way through, or you can or you can guess per clue. It's up to you. You can wait I till mean, the end. I'll has do it the Alex answer. James of Blur marketed a sparkling wine called Britpop? Tasting notes suggesting a creamy mousse with ripe stone fruits, bright citrus, and a biscuity length. Twenty five pounds a bottle. Okay.
3: Car- carry best, on. That's the first one.
4: The Bill Wyman metal detector is a lightweight, easy-to-use model aimed at getting kids interested in learning about the history of their surroundings. Is that fact or is that fiction? Move on. Move on. Kiss coffins. Be buried in a kiss (laughs) casket emblazed (laughs) with the band's faces and a giant kiss logo. Oh, yes, you can actually get a kiss casket. Kiss coffin. Okay. Mm. The next one. Noah Cyrus tears. The singer, Noah Cyrus, the singer and daughter of, of Billy Ray Cyrus, sister of Miley Cyrus, sold vials of her own tears. Following her public split with rapper Lil Zan. Cyrus collected her tears as part of her new merchandise range. Right? <laughs> each, each bottle containing 12 tears and retailing at $12,000. Okay? Mm-hmm. Two to go. The Lily Allen Vibrator, The Liberty, a discreet, neutrally-shaped vibrator with an image of, quote, the chief liberation officer herself on the box. (laughs) £89.99. Okay. And last, the James Blunt Bartender Party Pack, inspired by the track Bartender on the hit songwriter's fifth album, The Afterlife. Each pack comprises a can of blunt beer, a spritzer in a bottle... A display card with packs of peanuts that, when removed, reveal a picture of James Blunt in a bikini. <laughs> a little ironic
0: game. For the, for the benefit of anybody listening to the, to the Stackwaddy game for the first time, uh, it might be useful, just point out when it started, you know, that we used to make jokes about Stackwaddy, uh, and somebody got in touch and said, were they real or were they, you know, were they fiction? We said, no, they're real. Rock and roll is now so ludicrous that uh, you do not know what is truth and what is fiction. Hence the Stackwaddy game, named after the uh, venerable heavy metal group of yore. So, right, Mark, Alex James, I know that's real because that was recently in the papers. It was. It, it was. Pop, um, sparkling wine lily allen vibrator i know that's real as well because i can remember that actually that actually happening uh remind me remind me of some of the others bill wyman's metal detector that sounds vaguely that rings a bell
4: I'm afraid it's true. <laughs> it's true. Bill <laughs> has a keen interest in archaeology,
0: it says here. Yeah. I'm amazed he hasn't turned up in the Detectorist <laughs> alongside Magenta and Toby Jones. I know Crook you could be with Little cameo. A little cameo appearance. Absolute natural. i pewter jug. Yeah. I know. It's Go, perfect. Car- carry on. Carry on. Who else? Uh, there was the Kiss Coffins. Can't be true. Can't be true.
4: Okay.
0: Well, it is. It is. <laughs> the <laughs> Kiss Coffins. Yeah, I think so. It's so
4: biodegradable. Go so, on. So you're left with Noah Cyrus's Tears and James Blunt's Bartender Party Pack.
0: I'm going to say The Ringer is James Blunt's Party Pack. It is, because uh, you tell it was written by me. <laughs> Well, you wouldn't make up something about Noah Cyrus, would you? Whereas you, no, might you wouldn't, that, because it's just beyond belief. You'd you know, make that, it up about Miley Cyrus. Script, everyone it. talks about people, you know,
4: mining rich seams uh, in terms of writing songs when their relationships collapse. But to to actually uh, to collect your own tears and put them in a small glass file and market them for twelve thousand dollars a time, I'd, I'd give us some points for that. Why not? You no, know, James Blund, I make that up. Actually,
0: it's no it. different from other forms of monetizing your anguish, like being Leonard Cohen or anything. It's it's no different. No different at all. Selling sadness sadness is a there's a long tradition of that in popular I movies. just thought
4: it was something that James Bunt might do actually. That might James Bond in a bikini on a display pack covered <laughs> with peanuts. Somehow I just thought that was his sense of humor. Well but anyway he, you when, rumble me.
0: When he gets to hear about this, no doubt he will.
3: The word podcast prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week.
0: I just wanted to
4: mention this uh, thing about Reckless Eric. It's a really good piece in the Guardian. <laughs> I love Reckless Eric, and it makes the point that Reckless Eric's career for the last forty-seven years has been sustained almost entirely by one song. This is a regular podcast theme. We've talked about this with uh, Black and Wonderful Life and Golden Brown, Hugh Cornwall, and to a great extent Sting with Every Breath You Take. But but Alexis Petridis, the Guardian, points out that, that Eric who wrote. Uh, the whole wide world in 1977. This record was Eric, it was Scientist Diff Records, wasn't he, with Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and Larry Wallace, Wallace and everybody. This record came out, was not a hit, but it's just refused to go away. The monkeys did a version of it, the Proclaimers covered it, Green Day covered it, the Lightning Scenes covered it. There have been umpteen other versions of it. It's been translated into Italian and Finnish. It's appeared on, I think I've counted up, four movie soundtracks, including Will Ferrell singing it in Stranger Than Fiction. And it very recently turned up uh, on a TV ad for a travel company called Expedia, which stars uh, Ewan McGregor. And it was debuted at the 2022 Super Bowl, thus watched by 200 million people, with the results that the streaming, Spotify streaming figures, went up to 163 million streams, almost immediately. I love stories like that. The this idea that sense he sense. writes this song in 1977, which I remember coming out and thinking was terrific, but you know, never got anywhere, never made any impact at all. And still to this day, it's expanding, and that Reckless Eric, who now lives, I think, in his second wife in, somewhere in the East Coast of America, is. is I mean, I'm sure he's not, you know, he hasn't bought any yachts out of it, but I mean, he's,
0: oh, <laughs> he's pretty had quite a good life, really. I love these stories that People write song, you know, uh, songs, pop songs, they're like, they're like messages in bottles, aren't they, you know? Yeah. They, you, they, you, you twiddle up the bit of paper, you yeah. put, it, put it in the bottle, you cast it into the sea, and most of them never wash up on any shore at all. They, they just keep going round forever. But a very few wash up on the shore, and a tiny minority of those. Somebody goes in and actually reads the message and responds. And responds. In large numbers. And so you have this extraordinary phenomenon. I don't think it happens anywhere else in entertainment. You know, we've talked about Neat Lowe, what's so funny about peace, love, and yeah. understanding. And you know, there have been a few other examples where twenty three 30 years later, when you have completely forgotten about it. Somebody gets in touch and says, you know that song you wrote in 1976? Well... You know, Britney Spears has done a cover version of it or whatever, or it's on the soundtrack of Stranger Things. Yeah,
4: running up that hill. I mean, that that was pretty established anyway, but it just suddenly gets a shot in the arm. It's fantastic.
0: And uh, and the, the world being the way the world is, the earning opportunities nowadays, because there's so much media, are actually greater than they were back then. So if you had a choice between having a hit in 1977... And having that nowadays in a different world, you'd take nowadays every time because you made more money out of it. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, just uh, if you wrote a song in 1977 and nothing's happened with it, keep checking your post. You never know.
3: This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. As
0: you'll know if you've been listening recently, we've been focusing on the the splendid treasure trove of old documentaries of, uh, shall I say, obscure groups that you can find on YouTube over the years. We've had enormous fun uh, revisiting the 70s in the company of Punch and... uh, some uh, prog group, affinity, affinity all these <laughs> yeah. kind of people, and uh, but but the kind of uh, the godfather of these films is is obviously the Kersal Flyers documentary from nineteen seventy six, which I'm sure many people remember. And uh, who was it, Mark? Somebody suggested we should. Uh, we a guy should... called Mike Ca- Crawford sent it in. So Mike thanks, Crawford. To, thanks to him. Yeah, and it was on
4: Second. I thought it was a South Bank show. It was pre South Bank show. It was a thing called Second House on the BBC and introduced by. Melvin Bragg, looking rather suave in a, a, a roll neck sweater. And
0: so we're fantastic. very privileged to be joined by one of the stars of that film, uh, friend of the pod, and uh, drummer of the Curse of Flyers in those days, Will Birch. Will, I bet you delighted. Yeah, I you're, know, delighted, yeah, but I you're delighted to have the opportunity to talk about this film, aren't you? Didn't it turn up at a festival recently? You were telling me.
2: Oh, uh, There was a, a, a film festival, in, an annual film festival in Southend on Sea, and um, it was featured on one of the evenings, yes. And myself and Paul Shuttleworth the singer, and Vic Collins, uh, guitarist, three of us, had a little chat afterwards with the organisers. Yeah, it was a good evening. Yeah, good, good so, turnout. Very good. So
0: what do you remember about the making of this film back in 76?
2: Um, I remember that, uh, and, and don't forget, we'd only sort of turned professional, as it were, about nine months before, given up those of us who had day jobs, gave us our day jobs, and we decided to have a go, and we were doing quite well on the London pub rock circuit, and uh, we got a record deal, uh, et cetera, and then suddenly out of the blue, you know, six, seven months later, we got the word that there was a documentary being made by uh, Mark Kiddell. There were two other groups who were in the running. One of them was Ace. Which he was considering doing, and the other one was um, Kokomo. But there were about two hundred members of Kokomo, so I think they would. Be... Why did they choose you? <laughs> um, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> they, they
4: talk about you're a, you're a band tip for success, so there's an element of that, isn't it? They thought you were on the way up.
2: We were, we were, and and, and you were the following year. We did we did have a hit record, and we we were quite popular on the live circuit, and we toured around Europe a lot, Flying Burrito Brothers and various other things. But we were doing okay. But, um, yeah, it was a bit premature, really. But it came along, and our manager, Paul Conroy, thought it would be great exposure. So we said yes, and we did it. And we had uh, several days on the road with Mark Kudel and his film crew. And uh, they filmed a couple of live shows as well, which all edited into the final program. And, um, yeah, I don't know why they picked us. I think I think we were probably quite entertaining. You know, I think we were sort of quite funny in some respects.
4: Are you really funny? There's a lot of like There's only two good things about Scotland. One is the whiskey and the other is the road out of there. Well that was yeah, means- a bit weird. there's some girls are asking for autographs they said five autographs. He says oh, it wasn't like this at the Carnegie Hall. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well that would be good. Richie Bull, our, our bass player, who was a very, very funny guy and had a, a a quip for every occasion. Yeah. So yes, it was it was great fun. You know, it was good work good working with Mark and yeah
0: so what do you think when you look at it now i mean because i don't need to remind you this is nearly 50 years ago Will. yeah and you don't look a day older can i i'm not just Jenny, blowing through? you yeah. really don't look a day older. <laughs> well what, thank you um it
2: was it was a bit embarrassing I mean, it is a still a bit embarrassing uh to to watch i mean at the film festival recently i did sit there sit through most of it and i was sort of cringing a bit um you know chatting up the birds and so forth <laughs> terrible expression isn't it Ch- chatting up the girls um, but but you know the thing was the camera's there and, and and the guy wants a film and you and it's the entertainment industry and yeah. you've got to try and entertain it's no good hiding in a corner and pretending you you know so so we i think we've sort of rose to the occasion um and um yeah it's a bit it's a bit cringe to to watch now but of course it did um it, a lot of people say indirectly led to um the uh, bad news tour you know the comedy strip right, comedy comedy oh, right. Strip? that's yeah. interesting it's very very similar and in fact there's quite a lot of uh, instances in the um comedy strip film that are almost taken directly from our, our like what what sort of things oh well, i i can't cite them now I think well the funny thing is, um, is there not in that I haven't watched the bad news for a while, but there's a scene in our documentary where Paul is on the phone to his to his wife from a hotel yeah. telling her telling her how the tour's going. And I think they, they sort of stole that, I think. Right. That's um, they stole, you know. I think they were
0: sort of influenced by it.
2: Um <laughs> but
0: that that's I, that was, that's no bad thing. You know. I love the idea, it brings back a kind of lost world of gigging. I was watching it yesterday and I think you play one show at Middlesbrough Town Hall. Is that right? We do. And, and you've obviously played a couple of encores and you've gone back to the dressing room, which is at the top of the building. <laughs> and, and you're starting to unzip a can or whatever. And they're still applauding downstairs. And you're thinking, well, shall we go and give them another one? Or shall we really? Can we be bothered? And I think. Nobody would do that nowadays. They'd be tearing straight. <laughs> be so grateful for this. <laughs> so grateful. I, I mean, I think that might have been
2: what they called a second encore. I can't quite remember, but I think we I don't think we would have not
0: done an encore. No, did. absolutely I wasn't suggesting no, no, that. Not do but do clearly, one, but. but clearly they were still there. I was just interested in the idea of who were a bunch of people who turned up in Middlesbrough on a Saturday to see a group who weren't in the charts. Know what I mean? It wouldn't happen anymore, would it? Well, the live circuit was
2: quite quite vital, vital at the time, and um, there was a lot of work for us. I mean, we were never a huge, massive superstar group. We did we did quite a lot of live work, and usually to full houses. The very funny thing I remember is the night that that was broadcast, which was in um, early nineteen sixty no nineteen sorry nineteen seventy six. Uh, it was a Saturday evening on BBC Two and we had a show that night at uh, a university in London and we were due on stage at nine o'clock and the programme was going on at nine o'clock as well and we used to take a little portable TV set with us on tour, <laughs> little black and white, which we'd put on in the dressing room, you know, so we didn't miss whatever it was. And um, we were sitting there and the, the, the documentary's about to start and the, the social sex going, you're on stage in two minutes? And we're saying, "Hang on, hang on, we'll be there." And we're just tuning up, and we sort of dragged it out as long as possible to watch uh, to watch the start of the documentary, which we hadn't seen the the very the introduction to it. And we went on stage about ten minutes later, and it was quite a full house. It must have been five six hundred people in. And I remember sitting there playing as we opened our set, and I looked at the audience, and thought, "You." Others, you should all be at home watching us on television <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing coming and seeing us live when we're on the telly you know and of course,
0: <laughs> of course in those days that's just before the VHS isn't it yeah. so it yes. would go out and you wouldn't and think you wouldn't see it again you wouldn't see it again yeah. would you? No, it was just before that period yeah they were right there yeah that's extraordinary so you say you saw some other members of the other cursor flyers recently when, when this was shown in South End. I mean do, do you all still keep in touch? Do we you still, still play? Or? Yeah, we, we sort of keep in touch.
2: Um, Paul, Paul Shotless is a close friend, and I see him socially quite a bit. And um, uh, Richie Bull now lives in Wales. Graham's in London. Um, we did do sort of a bit of touring in the 90s and maybe a bit later, but not really anymore, not for me. In fact, only Wednesday of this week I um, took my old drum kit down and I've given it to somebody to try and sell it on my behalf. I've decided. Oh, will! Oh, that's I don't want a sad the drums moment anymore. So, if anybody wants to buy my drum kit, plug, <laughs> plug, plug. <laughs> uh,
0: oh. Give touch. us the Tragedy. Give us the link, will, and we'll put that underneath this because there's probably <laughs> probably be some hardcore Kersal fan who think this is what they want to complete their collection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so don't be ashamed to watch it, uh, Will. I thought it's a wonderful it's a wonderful slice of life, as it are r- all really these really is films. good. You yeah. forget
4: the distances that people used to drive, you know, all the way from Southend to Aberdeen or whatever. There, know, there you know, know, are. And then there, play a gig. There Amazing. you
0: are at the back of the van, and you do the obligatory mooning shot, don't you, of the passing... The passing for, camera crew. For, yeah, for, for the benefit of the camera, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but you, you put all that behind you. Boom, <laughs>
3: boom. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub.
4: Well, we have a birthday guest, uh, Ed Newman. And Ed, it's very nice to see you and, and hear you indeed. And uh, you have a, a conversational
5: log to chuck on the fire,
4: which is what?
5: I I do indeed. So so in truth form, I'm gonna give you a bit of a run-up to the que- to, yeah, to to yeah. the question. But essentially I, I, I was thinking about my favorite bands, my favorite solo artists, and f- thinking that I could come if, if I bought a new record or got onto a new artist, it never really becomes a favorite, or or very seldom does, you know, and, and so I wrote out my list my a list of twenty of my favorite solo artists, my twenty favourite bands, and got a, a couple of close musical friends to do the same thing. And try to work out at, at, at what point uh, I, I was into these bands and solo artists and for me and also also for the for the other for my my brother and my friend Simon, it was about 21 we, we you know 80 90 percent of the list was done by the age of 21 and and um, and so you can you can come you know, we, we, we all got into bands and, and solo artists after this and they, which are just as good as anything on the list, but they never become your favorite. And the question I've got is, is if if that is the same with other people, why is it not the same for movies and directors and authors and books and TV shows and jazz musicians and classical composers? You can get into other art forms and they can become your favourites at a later stage, but why is it so embedded in for, for, for pop and rock music at such an early age? Mark, you've got a theory.
4: No, I've got a theory. That's such a good question, I think. My theory is because... Listening to music, I think, is a completely different experience from reading a book or watching a, a film or whatever. I think listening to music is entirely about you, partly because music is invisible, I think. You're, you are It's utterly immersing. You know, you're, it, it, you're, it's what you feel about the lyric. It's what you feel about the people who are performing it. It's what you feel about the memories that it r- reminds you of when you first heard it or whatever. It's about how you you're affected by it, it's about, you know, you don't just listen to a blur record. You, you, you're you experiencing your feelings about blur. And I think that's completely different from reading a book or watching a film, because I think that's a, an objective piece of entertainment where you're taken away somewhere. So firstly, I think the process is really different. And secondly, I think that the, the time that you're most affected by that, when music means the most and it's it, it's just so part of the life you're leading tends to be when you're either a teenager or in your early 20s or whatever. So when you hear those records, you're transported back to the time when you felt strongest about them. That's broadly my feeling. And, and also, it's instant. You know, reading a book and, and uh, watching a film, is it takes a long time, that's several hours. Whereas a record's an instant thing that can just transport you back. Anyway, that's how I, I feel about it.
0: I, is there anything yeah, to that? I think there's a lot of truth in that. I would just add... I think your relationship with the people who make music is different from your relationship with the people who write books or direct movies because basically they're friends and you adopt them as friends and then you spend the rest of your life post-justifying the decision you took emotionally at the age of 16 or 18 or whatever you know you you can you can tell people why you were right to choose whoever it was you know and we feel more closely about those people than we feel about anybody later because i don't know about you but i haven't got many new friends (laughs) it's just the way (laughs) life works i've got loads of old friends you know and, we, you know, we always joke, Mark and I always joke, oh, I don't want any new friends because we'd have to let one of the old ones go, you know, to <laughs> <laughs> so make a bit of room for them. And it's kind of like that with musicians, isn't it? I hear lots of things. I think, oh, that's really good. And then I realise a couple of months later I've forgotten about them completely, mm-hmm. whereas yeah. the stuff that formed the repertoire before I was 30, I will never forget because it's like you don't forget the things you learn at school. When primary school, are probably the things you don't forget. University, you forget that stuff. Actually, the earlier you learn it, the more yeah. it sticks with you. You know. So that's that's what
5: I think. What do you think? Well, I I think that those are those are I I sort of relate to a, a lot of that w- w- what i find interesting I, I i like this idea of the personal relationship with the music that, that that's good but w- why should it be different for jazz why should it be different for classical music you could surely you can immerse yourself in those in those in in in, in, in a classical similar way music,
4: I'm, I, I think that's an easy one to answer surely because how can you have a relationship as close as the relationship you have with the pop musician who was making records in the early 70s, with somebody who may have died 200 years ago. Or if they're contemporary, you probably know absolutely mm. nothing about. And I think Dave's point's is right, because no film director... I've been sad when film directors have died, but I've never sat down and thought, oh, my God, you know, I really had a connection with that person. Because I didn't. I don't know anything about them. Whereas the, the personality of the person producing the music is so integral to the experience of liking that But it's
0: piece. also the whole idea of rock stars... You know, sorry, i have bored about this in in the past in in print. They are fantasy friends. That's what they are. More more important than anything else is you love them. You know, they're the mate that you never had who who kind of did a bit better than you did or, or, you know, achieved things that you didn't. Uh, You know, and it's kind of... uh, it's a very odd kind of relationship. You know, it's the gang you couldn't join. It's all that kind of thing. It's the sixth mm-hmm. form. The sixth former is just slightly ahead of you and all that. I don't think you ever get over that myself, you know. Uh, you know no matter how, how long you live, that never goes away. Because, you know, the, the football heroes, the sporting heroes, they're not doing it anymore. You know, they hung up their boots when they were 32. Yeah. And now they just pontificate on the television. You can't feel the same way about them as you feel about Paul McCartney or whoever, you know. You'd still be growing old
4: with them. You're growing up, they're writing about things when you were 20 that might affect your life when you were 20. And 30 years later, they're kind of writing about things at the same level as you. There's a a mirror being held up to your own life, etc.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
5: In, in that case, t- tell me the name of the band or the solo artist that you would class as a favourite that you got into the latest in your life. What's the exception to the rule?
0: Oh, that I got into latest Ooh. in my... God, I don't know. Colin
4: Milloy's a the Decemberists
0: like Yeah, somebody like that. Even no, that's really like twenty years ago, isn't no, was it? it? So, really? He's a really uh, interesting guy. You know. And uh, God, I don't I'd really have to think. You know, I, I I didn't develop a passion for Nick Cave until relatively recently, you know what I mean? And also he's one of those artists who kind of suits. Suits being older, you know what I mean. Far more than being younger, I agree. Being young I think, and also think that applies to quite a few people. Yeah, it certainly applies, to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, you know, mm. said, Richard Thompson wrote a song years ago called "I'm an old man within a young man." You know, and uh, and you know, I think I think quite a few people are, you know, yeah, and, uh, you know, those kind of singers they grow into applies. themselves. Yeah, they grow into themselves. You know, so. Um, Yeah. uh, Well,
3: interesting topic. And uh, thank you for your log on the fire, Ed. The Word Podcast. Walking the digital dog since 2007.
4: Apropos of absolutely nothing, I was watching this clip, which I really recommend to anybody, actually. I think it might have been posted by Danny Baker. I can't remember where I saw it now. But it's an amazing interview with Bill Graham, who was the promoter, of course, of, you know, Fillmore West, Fillmore East, etc., recorded, I think, in 1974, very, very sober and really intelligent interview with him, asking him all sorts of fascinating questions. And his responses are so, just so original and so fresh. And what I never realised about him, and you actually, you met Bill Graham, so you talk I about did. that at some stage. But, he, 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 you know, what I never realised about him was how different his life had been to the people that he was promoting. You know, it could not have been more polar opposite ends of the scale. You know, he was born. He says, Wolfgang Greonka, uh, in 1931. He's a son of Jewish Russian emigres. His, his father died when he was two days old. Mother died in a, a concentration camp. He's moved to an orphanage in Berlin, and then he went to a French orphanage. And then he was shipped uh, on a circuitous route to New York at the age of 11 in 1944, and put into a foster home. And eventually adopted and lived in the Bronx, and. You know, there he's kind of duffed up at school and he joined the army and just yeah, has to learn a new language. And then enthralled by rock and roll, enthralled by poetry and by jazz, Understandably, all these things that suggested a kind of freedom that he knew nothing about. He started to get into, into promotion and finishes up having to deal with, you know, these sort of middle-class <laughs> weed heads like the Jefferson Airplane <laughs> who turn up late and are just utterly chaotic and, un- and you know, it's just amazing. There's a great bit in this. He's kind of finished promotion at this point. He's kind of got out of the, that world, you know, but he says that he had to make himself become more tolerant of musicians who took drugs. And he talks, he talks about the business he says it's a rotten, greasy business. It's a corrupt business, you know. And it says so many interesting things. He says, uh, says I can count uh, on the fingers of one hand the number of musicians who have had enormous success and have changed positively. <laughs> really interesting. And there's this guy in the wings watching all these people, you know, from the background he came from. And uh, being, And t- it talks about how incredible, he's very sympathetic though. It talks about how incredibly hard it would be if you're on stage in front of five, Hundred thousand people. Whatever you say or whatever you do is uncritically applauded. He talks about how that must just mess with your mental equilibrium. I thought it was very interesting. And I think a lot of his success was to do with the fact that that's the world he came from. He wasn't a kind of like, like the Woodstock promoters, a kind of middle
0: class uh, college boy. You know what I mean? He's just he just came from a totally different world. But also, he was a theatre person, wasn't he? Because yeah, that's how he started in kind of show business. And therefore, when he got into rock and roll, what he wanted to do was to provide kind of complete experiences for audiences. Yeah. And so he very much tended to treat the performers as a director of a theatre company would treat the actors, i.e. Yeah. you turn up on time, you know your lines, you don't fall off the stage, all that kind of yeah, thing. I see you as only a, a component in a bigger picture. You're a component, part, And so the classic... What made Bill Graham famous were the two Fillmores, one in San Francisco, one in New York, Fillmore East, Fillmore West. And they were relatively small places, I think you'd probably see you know, two and a half thousand or something like that, at The biggest, and they were little theaters and you would put on shows like five, five nights a week and the, very often the classic lineup would have three acts, and the big act would be in the middle uh, and uh, and so you'd you 'd have a mix of kind of you know one old favorite, one kind of up and comer from Britain <laughs> cutting their teeth in the United States, and then you might have somebody unexpected. And so he used to do things like, I think he put on Jethro Tull with Rasan Roland Kirk. Oh, my God,
4: amazing. You know,
0: I think he put on Miles Davis with Sly and the Family Stone because his whole thing was all this stuff came from somewhere. And so he very much had a kind of educational attitude towards doing this. He was also, like lots of these people, he had a big ego and I think he would admit it. You know, I met him, you know. Just a few years before he died, he was over here. And um, and uh, you know, I re- he said something to me I've never forgotten. I was talking talking to him about putting together shows in the sixties. He says, What you have to remember is in the sixties we were out there with no compass. That's right. Which I thought was a fantastic yeah, way to put it. Yeah. And you see, of course, he got swept out of business after about four or five years by the likes of Peter Grant, the big managers who came along and said, we no longer want our act to be one part of your, of your composite. Our act, you know, plays on its own and, you know, takes over the whole evening, takes over your venue and bigger venues than yours. And we want 80% of the game. And we want 90% of it probably, yeah. and you'll be looking to get 10% of it. And so in the end, it was an argument about money and you know he had to kind of he had to knuckle down really and he got into the into the big uh, the big promotion game and he was working for the rolling stones right up until steel wheels which is whenever that is 1989 or something like that when basically the um the stones kind of put their plans to tour america out tender uh, and bill graham bid a huge sum of money, and they said, no, that's not enough. Because, um, what's his name, Michael Cole, the Canadian promoter, who revolutionised the concert business, just came in and said, I can make far more money out of a tour than anybody's ever made before because I'm going to sell sponsorship, I'm going to sell the, the beer rights, the parking rights, the yeah. whatever, and therefore I will write you, Nick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, a huge cheque, at the beginning, and then it would be up to me to make the money back. Well, that wasn't the way that Bill Graham had worked, you know, so it was kind of... Which he is was very attractive a musician, don't it? Guaranteed very, money Absolutely. Before you've even done a day's work. A huge sum of money, you know, you're money. In you in know you're, yeah. taking, taking the work out of it. But he was a hugely important person, Bill Graham, and it's really interesting. Pete Townsend's one of the people who talks about this a lot. The Pete Townsend says the what changed the who was a, what do you think, I think Pete Townsend calls it the electric ballroom um, experience. Electric ballroom was a venue, was it in Boston? It was somewhere like that. And there were a few of these venues, and the Fillmore would like them, and the electric ballroom, and there's one in Philadelphia, and there's one in Detroit, or whatever. And they were run by local promoters, and they would get in, you know, there'd be 3,000 people to come in, And the band was suddenly, the Who, in their case, was suddenly doing something that was different from what they'd done before. Because what they'd done before was kind of package tours, really, or universities. And it'd been go on, play your hits, get off, kind of thing. Whereas the electric ballroom experience meant that they might play for two hours. Yeah. And so if you listen to the Who live at Leeds, as everybody has done, that is a form of music invented for the American electric ballroom circuit in that it's it chugs away you know what I mean it's not that many numbers numbers play for quite a long time with with kind of uh, you know, periods of tension and then climaxes and then n- new periods of tension and so forth you know yeah. it just it's a different form of music and they wouldn't have played that kind of music had it not been for the electric ballroom experience and the electric ballroom experience was invented by bill graham yeah um you know because of that you know, i think and if you listen to all those you know all those live at the Fillmore East, humble pie the Allman brothers <laughs> all that stuff cream wheels of fire it was all all
4: because they gave that was, amount of space. He was
0: shaping that kind of uh, yeah. experience. And also... And they were
4: inventing a kind of music that would that would work in venues that big as well.
0: I, I, but also, but those venues then, very quickly, Mark, became really small. Because there's 2,500 people. And then within two years, they're playing Dodger Stadium. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a totally totally different kind of thing. The other thing about Bill Graham, really interesting, is whenever there's a live album recorded at Fillmore... He introduces it. It's him. Yeah. That was that was the ego. You know, that was it's my show. I'm in charge. Well, oh, it, it, Bill Graham's I mean, That's absolutely. kind Absolutely. Of, to give
4: it its full name. That's, how you, that's what he you, used
0: you, you, to. He used to. He used to get involved in real altercations with members of the crowd who weren't behaving themselves in a way that yeah. he he expected. He would. He would literally chuck people out himself, and, and also and the other interesting thing about the film, Philmore's you Think about it now at this distance over 50 years. No booze, there was no booze in the film. And you think about it nowadays, what inextricably linked with live music? Booze
4: completely,
0: Booze, absolutely, almost all. unimaginable without it. Actually. There was no booze. First
4: thing you did when you arrived was go to the bar,
0: people would smoke joints. And the other thing is, the only form there was only one form of sustenance at the film halls, and they used to have a load of apples in the foyer. Exactly. Help yourself to an apple. <laughs> and, and how much would you pay? You wouldn't buy much, you know. I'll keep you going till six in the morning.
4: Few dollars. When yeah. Elmer Gantry comes on. <laughs> <The> Elmer
0: Gantry. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, dear, dear, dear. While we're talking about this, actually, let's just continue because we, um, we started this thing last week where we do a quiz on Friday nights and, you know, for Patreon supporters and you know if you are one and you'd like to join us please please do so you know and basically how this works is we do it friday nights at six o'clock and uh, we have a load of of picture clues and what you have to do is to guess which album we're we're talking about this is recently we used to do it used to be an act now it's an album and so last week we did Paul uh, Simon and Garfunkel Bridge Over Trouble Water and this week we did, we just recorded it earlier, we just did it live earlier, and uh, you'll know if you took part in it, was uh, U2's Actung Baby. And I was, I was listening to that today, Mark, and, uh, and, um, and one thing that struck me that ties into what we are just saying about Bill Graham and, uh, and you know, those theatres, is that Stadium Rock really had a sound to it didn't it you know what I mean? there's a form of music that would never be played were it not to you know with a view to to being performed in front of 50,000 people and an acting baby is kind of a classic case for that isn't it you know what it mean? it's kind of big gesture music isn't it it's it's big, kind of windy music. It's not. It, it's not built for. Uh, it's not built for the indoors, is it? Really? No, it couldn't you know? be contained.
4: Couldn't be. Possibly even by a roof, actually. It, yeah. and,
0: uh it, It's just. Uh, I was listening to it today. I thought I, I. I couldn't help. Couldn't get out of my mind the picture, of. You know, if you go to these big gigs. And you might be up in the gods or whatever at the back of the place. And you'll, you'll see the act go into some familiar song. And you'll see people just rush towards the stage and try and find a patch, you know what I mean? And embrace their mates and then bounce up and down, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it really struck me. That's the stadium rock experience, isn't it? It's kind of not got a lot to do with music. It's just, it's just a thing of its own, isn't it? It is not it And you two found a way of doing it there, didn't they? And uh, I suppose Acton Baby is, what is it, 1991, and they've, it's a reaction to Rattle and Hum, isn't it, which had been the one before.
4: Well, that's what I remember, because I was the, I was the editor of Select magazine in whatever it was, when it came, came out, I think in 91. November 91, that's 91. right. Yeah. And then before that, I mean, the Joshua Tree in 85, before that had been Rattle and Hum, and actually Rattle and hum, so funny because I had been the editor of Q magazine, of course, who absolutely adored everything that, that uh, you two did and thoroughly approved of their Americanization with Rattle and Hum, you know. But Select was for a kind of... Um, you know uh, curmudgeonly students who were listening to uh, you know PJ Harvey and The Fall and uh, and you know Curve and Nirvana The Pixies the Electronic and stuff and therefore the jury was out on YouTube YouTube were considered to be the old guard I remember their PR ringing me up fantastic girl called Regine Moylan and ringing me up and saying look I know I know Select probably you would desperately want him on the cover and I wasn't very keen you know and she said like, oh, what I'm going to send you the cover of this album oh you know, really and I look at it so I thought it was a really clever thing to see. So I looked at the cover. The cool. cover is incredible because it's got, it's got completely un-American. It's these images, mostly taken by Anton Corbine, of them all over Europe. They're at Hansel Studios and they're in Berlin, aren't they? And they're in, uh, they're, they're in a Tenerife uh, interrupt?
0: Can I interrupt this? Because I just want to make a point about this cover. Because Anton shot a load of cover, that pictures for that cover. Yeah. They didn't like them. And the, partly the reason they didn't like them was they were black and white. Yeah. And so they went to Tenerife for two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks to shoot more pictures, colour pictures. Colour time. pictures of them in drag, actually, Saturated as well. colour pictures. Adam yeah. Clayton's knob, I think. Adam Clayton's knob. That
4: was another thing on that. I can remember the girls' knob was being very, very amused and entertained by this, you know. That was another thing. It was an extraordinary a naked picture of a member of the band was on the cover. And they looked bizarre. They were wearing makeup, And as I say, they were in this, this Santa Cruz festival in Tenerife. And the other thing was the Trabant. There was this. I remember saying to him, "What's this car? Oh, this is a kind of cheap, kind of you know, um, kind of throwaway Russian car
2: that they East take. German. East that,
4: German. i sorry, it's East German was it? East German. What I'm talking about that's right? That they've kind of adopted as a kind of as a symbol of kind of new Europe somehow. You know, I thought that was really interesting, and it made me look at them differently. And also, she told me about working with Brian Eno. They'd gone back to Brian Eno. Brian Eno was doing his oblique strategies. Do you remember that? We used to yeah. hand out cards. I can remember talking to Travis once, who'd done a, uh, an, an album with Brian Eno. And I said, what did he make you do? He said, he simply made us just swap instruments. We all had to play each other's instruments. I thought, what a clever idea. And Eno used to make them pick cards. And the cards would tell them to kind of do things. You know, they would tell them, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, convert a melodic element into a rhythmic element. Uh, or what would your closest friend do, and all that? And I thought that was interesting, and so I went and listened to it. And of course, it's an amazing record, isn't it? Because the Edge and Bono were listening to all this electronic music from Europe, and. Adam and Larry Mullen were still listening to things like Disraeli Gears Blind, blind like, Faith <laughs> Blind Faith they were Blind Faith Blind Faith. so it's fantastic and, uh, and, I and it you, was the record that completely changed their fortunes because suddenly they became kind of fresh, and we put them on the cover so part of it, I feel so fond about of that record is that when you were an editor of a magazine you put somebody or something on the cover that sold you've always been you always got a real
0: soft spot for it and it did really really well I'll tell you, the other connection is that uh, you and I have been reading the Kevin Armstrong book. Kevin Armstrong, the uh, the guitar player, has written a really good book called Absolute Beginner. It's terrific book, yeah. Uh, uh, memoirs of the world's best, least known guitarist. And uh, Kevin Armstrong has done, doing, done many things, worked with David Bowie and Iggy and all sorts of people, uh, Paul McCartney and whoever. And... Um, I was reading the bit the other day where he talks about going to uh, Eno's, joining Eno's choir. Oh yeah, I've sung in Eno's choir. Uh, you've sung, so Eno yeah. has a choir, and uh, and one Basically of the things called the Elgin Marvels. Oh, but anyway, so, yeah, 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 Elgin and, Avenue. And one of the things that the to Kevin Armstrong uh, talks about is that Eno thinks that lyrics, it doesn't matter whether they mean anything. All that matters is whether they sound right with with the music. And, uh, you know, I'm inclined to believe it, you know, because you and I were talking about Bridge Over troubled Water last week and somebody, I know we were quoting the lyrics of The Boxer by Paul Simon, you know, I'm just a poor boy, I'm sorry, Selden told her I. I squandered my resistance for a pocket volume. Mumbles. mumbles,
4: such are promises.
0: Yeah. All lies and chess. All jest. lies and jests So the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Absolutely, which we thought were masterful. And somebody was, got in touch on, I can't remember how, on the Patreon um, social bit, um, talking about how Billy Bragg said that he'd submitted a Paul Simon lyric at school for. For in English literature class, and the got have out of ten or something, and and I said, well, that's probably right, really, because you know, a poem, Philip Larkin, when he wrote a poem, it took him months to yeah. write a poem because it all had to work, it all had to work on its own. A song lyric is not song like that. written
4: it. over two bottles of beer with art garfunkel bleeding <laughs> down your neck.
0: <laughs> there's a kind of classic case of this on the U2 album because the song, the key song on Acton Baby, the song that that they they all say brought them back together because they're on the verge of breaking up, is one, you know. And we all know one. It's fantastic. It's not quite a ballad. I don't know what it is. It sounds vaguely folking. Everybody knows it. And it's a, kind of, a lighter-in-the-air tune, if there ever was one, isn't it? One. It is. I defy anybody to tell me what it means. It, to sit there and read those lyrics, it doesn't mean anything Don't at all.
3: They're,
4: and they're not even terribly <laughs> good. They're rather clumsy. And,
0: but uh, they sing perfectly well. Up. They do. They sing absolutely, There's absolutely a great documentary
4: perfectly. about the making of uh, Acting Baby which I I remember seeing, and they, they talk about when they discover that they find that song. They're just jamming. And they play the whole of this section because they're recording everything in the desperate hope that something might turn up. And the edge comes and stumbles across that chord sequence. And it's just wonderful. And they identify it on the computer. And they put it up and then they play it. They say, say, now there's something in that. And it's one of those <laughs> it's really magical moments, actually. Because it's right. a terrific song. It's just a great right. chord sequence. Yeah. Why it never been done before, I don't
0: know. I'm sure it has, actually. It's probably an old temptation song. So, 1991, let's just remind ourselves how long ago is that, Mark? 34 years. Is it 34 years? No,
3: 32 years
0: ago. 32 years, my lord. 32 years
3: ago. This podcast was brought to you by the Word.